You're listening to The Broken Meeple Show, a podcast that speaks passionately about board games for the benefit of those who play them. My name's Luke Hector, best known for The Broken Meeple YouTube channel, and I'm an everyday gamer just like you. And I'll be talking about reviews, top tens, and just about anything that connects me to board games. As long as I have a tea or coffee in hand, that is. So grab a cup, relax, and enjoy. And remember, it's only a game. Hi everybody, Luke Hector from the Broken Meeple here. Hopefully this is working, because OBS has crashed for me about three times just trying to get a recording started, which is somewhat annoying, so much so that my coffee is starting to go cold. That's not a good start. But yeah, thank you. This is, whatever, 31st of January 2022. It's a day late for the podcast as normal, but as I mentioned on the uh, YouTube channel, uh, community page, and on some of my social media, I've been helping out the Guildhall Games Fest recently. So the la- this weekend gone, I was basically, let's see if I can bring up some details actually on the screen, but basically it's a big festival that is held in Portsmouth, uh, usually every February. And the idea is, is that basically it's a, well, as I say, it's in the name, it's a games fest. It covers board games, it covers uh, retro uh, arcade games, it covers modern sort of land gaming, you know, proper like online multiplayers. And essentially it's held over a weekend in February. It takes place in the Portsmouth Guildhall itself. And I wonder if I can find some pictures, it would be nice. But basically, it's just a big mix. Uh, Dice Portsmouth, who I support, you know, my local gaming cafe, uh, go there every time. They set up tables, they're willing to teach games. But there's only so many of them, so what I tend to do is I volunteer to basically say, you know what, I would like to give you a hand and teach stuff. Uh, Come on, I must be able to find a good proper set of images or so but the idea is is that yeah maybe this is a little bit better is that it yeah come on load up this image <laughs> we'll get there but basically yep lots of tables so people can teach games people can play like old stuff like you know like well they can play like new stuff like raspberry pies but they can play all these old arcade games like street fighter and that will be in the top of the screen there'll be board games so this looks you know playing azul here uh, you'll be able to go to like the novatech suite and you'll be able to do like virtual reality stuff you can do modern uh, like giant LAN events, so big like sixteen player multiplayer game, shoot 'em up or something, or Fortnite, whatever's your uh, whatever's your kick, and it's always good fun. I always enjoy it, and I just like to volunteer there and teach games. It's always a good laugh. I you know meet some new people, I get to hang out with some friends, and overall it's a good thing. So you know I'll be there next year, and we have Portsmouth Comic Con, I believe, coming up in. When was it? Portsmouth Comic Con 2022. So we'll be doing that in May, I believe. I think it's in the yep, 7th, 8th of May 2022. Similar deal. They basically, except the Comic Con is obviously based more around geekdom in general. So, you know, anything from sci fi Star Wars to witchcraft or World of Warcraft, you know, pirates and basically anything geeky. But Dice Portsmouth will be there again, uh, teaching, you know, games. And I will obviously be there to, you know, help them out as well. So, yeah. You know, can't wait for that, so I'll see you there in May, but on with the show. Otherwise, I have basically been, you know, just kicking back, really. You know, I have now finally sorted out my employer issue, you know, so I got laid off in December, you know, long story short, not great, but oh well, what happens, but got my notice period paid, it was all handy, and it was amicable at the end, but still, I wasn't a big fan of how it went down, but I was worried that, you know, something might not be around the corner, but turned out I was wrong. You know, within a fortnight of leaving, I had two interviews lined up. I then essentially jumped into both of them, had to assess between the two, then got another like prospect come through. So I had to assess that one. And so uh, as of last week, I made the decision on which one I wanted to keep and I'm employed again. So yeah, got another job, another corporate tax manager role, and it will be a bit more of a commute. I've got to go to Southampton for this one rather than Portsmouth, but I have friends in Southampton and the Southampton Gaming Club, so at least twice a week, I probably want to be in Southampton, so the commute's not really a problem. But, you know, it's hybrid working, so three days in, two days out, you know, always handy. The roadworks will hopefully finish soon on that road to make life a bit easier, but yeah, I start in three weeks, uh, around uh, sort of mid to latest February, right after I come back from up north when I visit my elder brother for a week. So yeah, there's some, you know, I'm just basically going to enjoy myself for the rest of uh, February, you know, just play some games, 
you know, catch up with a bunch of solo games. I mean, that's kind of one of the focuses of this episode is uh, talking about some games that I finally managed to catch up and binge on. But yeah, you know, do some reviews, do some top tens, keep the blog content going and, you know, just generally be like, well, three weeks more freedom. I've been enjoying all this time off, but it's going to be hard to get back into the swing of early mornings, early commutes, full-time work, tax job. You know, not to say it's not you know, potentially good. I mean, this new place sounds very much more modern and laid back and you know, like sort of flexible. So it really does sound more my style. I hate it when these firms are like old fashioned, pre-generation, you know, uh, everything's red tape. It's, you know, that sort of thing doesn't work with me. I have to change who I am to do the job. This place, I feel like I don't have to change who I am in order to do the job. So yeah, would be good. And for those who joke saying, oh, you know, why don't you do your blog full time? Yeah, if I want to be homeless within a few weeks, yeah, that would work. But, you know, dreams, we can have dreams, but without a lottery win, that ain't happening. Right. But yeah, otherwise, like I say, no more reflux issues, not much in the way of stress other than sorting out the uh, new job and a couple of other loose ends. But, you know, they've all tied up, really. Uh, still trying to get this table replaced you know that seems to be dragging its heels and uh, i've sorted out mortgage remortgage things so yeah just generally personal life has started to kind of calm down a little bit and with the new employment on the horizon you know world's an oyster now obviously this will affect publishing on the channel because i've got more time at the moment although it has been quite a busy couple of weeks but obviously when i start my job i gotta focus on that so don't expect me to be putting out like three to four videos a week and all that it's just recently i've been catching up with a lot of content so you would have noticed over the past few weeks i've gone a bit ape catching up with board game reviews that i've had in the pipeline for ages so now or never uh, was actually a quick one. I've just reviewed that, the newest one from Red Raven Games. I literally got that early January, binged it, played it. And despite how some people might want to insult me by saying, uh, you know, I've not played it enough. It's like, uh, yes, I have. You know, come on. Just because you disagree with it does not mean you can throw around insults. But uh, yep, full review is up for that. But then I had all these other ones backdated, like Shinkansen and Origins First Builders and Brian Boro and Tabanusi and The Loop and uh, the... Uh, Book of Rituals and Dixit Stellar. Most of these were ones I've had since December. You know, I really had to churn a lot of these out. Some of them are detail format. Some of them are express format. Some are doing better than others. I mean, there's not a huge amount of views on a lot of these express reviews. I mean, now never is not doing too bad, but even then, that's a few days old. You know, these ones are much older and they're just not doing as well. I mean, even Tabanusi is not that great i mean 1500 views that's it for a detailed tabernacle review i thought more people were interested to know about that one but who knows maybe it just wasn't as popular a game as people thought but thankfully the top 10s are still good hence i want to do more of them i mean the top 10 games of 2021 25,000 views that is kind of insane the top 10 anticipated games now that i've started doing this every year because everybody keeps saying i should uh, 15,000 views i think you were right yeah so fair enough i will do that every year the last one wasn't as uh, popular, top 10 anticipated expansions of 2022, but, you know, still a decent amount of views to make the video worthwhile. Like I say, I really want to get like 5,000 views a video to justify the time length it takes to do a top 10. Uh, but another top 10 is in the works. Uh, I think the next video I will be putting out, well, I've got a choice between two. It's either going to be a first impressions video of the defense of Procyon 3, uh, or it's going to be the top 10... Uh, games that killed other games we're getting on to some lists that patreons have voted on thank you patreons for supporting the channel and we're going to be doing two top 10 lists we're going to do the top 10 games that killed other games as i said and then the reversal of that which i believe will be the first time any blogger has ever done this list which is the top 10 games that defended from other games so which one's like well like oh this one's going to replace this one no it doesn't i still like the old one you know it's going to be an interesting list and of course uh collaborations i want to do more of so I'm definitely up for doing some more top 10s, either solo on StreamYard or with other creators on StreamYard. It's just a lot of people have been a bit busy or the list ideas I've got are a little bit niche. So, you know, some creators aren't able to come up with a decent set of 10. However, thank you for everybody who did tune in to Mark Dainty and I doing uh, top 10 solo games. Uh, definitely check out. In fact, yeah, I haven't mentioned live streams I've done. Yeah, top 10 solo games we did with Mark Dainty. 8,000. That's been really popular. Thank you very much for everyone who's watched that live stream. That was really good fun. And also I did a live stream of ranking my all the spirits from Spirit Island. And I used Tear Maker to do it. And it seemed to work quite well, although only 1,500 views. So I don't know if they're that 
worth the time, but it was good fun to do. Uh, maybe I could do it for other things like, you know, Sentinels and eventually Street Masters and stuff like that. It could be interesting. But what you really got to look forward to is that in February, Mark Dainty and I will uh, reconvene to do top 10 solo Euro games. So think of this first one as mostly thematic games, but maybe like an all-time favorite top 10 solo games. But considering most of mine on that list are not Euros, and Mark sort of a mix in between as well, I figured, all right, well, why don't we do top 10 Euro solo games? So we're talking, you know, stuff like, you know, you know, Euro games like Preda Porter, Ark Nova, Uri Rosenberg stuff, you know, um, what are Euro games can I think of? You know, the dry, anything from Stefan Feld, um, you know, uh, trying to think, yeah, you know, Stonemaier stuff, the, the proper Euro games. Are there solo modes on that we enjoy? Well, some point in February, we'll get on that. Maybe the middle of February, hopefully before I start work. That <laughs> would make life a lot easier. Anyway, so what am I going to talk about on this podcast? Well, there's not much in the way of news. Sadly, there really isn't that much in the way of interesting news at the moment. Uh, And so what I'm basically going to do is make this a bit of a bumper episode. So I will have a small topic to talk about later. But I'm basically going to do some quick fire reviews of uh, Rolf Player Adventures and Morton Medieval Detective. These are two games I've been binging through recently in order to get them played. Now, Morton isn't going to get released like on mainstream for a while and roleplayer adventures released on kickstarter but it didn't it's not i think going to retail for another few months yet and because you don't want to spoil too much i don't think these justify their own individual videos so i figured i would review these on the podcast and i also want to just sort of mention well before i get onto those why don't we just mention well and a topic i've got later on about effort for solo games but firstly the defense of procyon 3 so far, basically, I've only played it the once. This is a giant game from David Turksey and PSC Games, and it basically is an asymmetrical humans versus space aliens game where each player of the four takes control of an aspect of human or spacefaring, so human land, human space, alien land, alien space, and they play a totally asymmetric game you know, each for each other. Each one has their own separate rulebook, their own different mechanics, but you are playing on the same two boards. This is the land one. I don't know if there's an image for the space one anywhere. And essentially, yeah, the space one in the distance. You can sort of work with each other, but I don't know. I'll talk about that another time. But the idea is, is that the humans are trying to rescue scientists and kill off aliens and that, whereas, you know, the aliens are trying to wipe out humans, kill off the scientists and dominate the space area. So, yeah, there's various things. Each one's, you know, one person does bag building. Another one has a little deck building element. Another one is more about hand management and using dice. There's different elements of luck for each faction but I think that there's just too much to talk about in a podcast uh, snippet so I'm probably going to do eventually a quick first impressions video of this because to cut a long story short we played this four of us heavy gamers played this and we played it the way it was meant to be played so each of us randomly took a faction we took a rule book each and we learned the game via our individual rule books Right, so this is how the rule book tells you to learn the game because obviously the idea of learning four to five rule books in by yourself and then teaching the game is not something you want to do. Trust me on that. Well, we all kind of bounced off it, but at different levels. I mean, a couple of my mates bounced off this quite hard. I bounced off this, but I can see its merits. But the thing is with this game is that it is incredibly niche. This is really for a specific audience. This is for a war gamers market. You know, people are into that style of game because this feels like a war game in terms of its design, in terms of the investment it requires, in terms of rules complexity, and you know the t- and obviously having people available to play a long game and and b- learn how all the factions work. But in doing so, I feel that's going to alienate a lot of players, and I'm not the target audience here. But Uh, It's too much detail to go into now, but just to say I am going to talk a bit more uh, from, and bear in mind this is first impressions, okay, this will not be a full review, this is just to say, right, I have played it, and these are my thoughts, but yeah, like I say, we'll get onto that another time. So why don't we go to something a bit more positive and talk about Mortem, Mortem Medieval Detective, this is one that, uh, you know, I grabbed at Essen, and it's basically, well, the clue is in the title. It's called Medieval Detective. What more do you want to know? It's essentially detective, like from Portal Games, if you wanted to put a medieval spin on it. 
So you're playing a band of you know agents in a sense, and the plot involves you having to track down some missing agents. You go to a village, you find out more about you know who was involved, what happened to them, and then this other sort of bigger plot starts unfolding, and then you you know you go to other places. There's some um, you know maybe some. Uh, odd mystical element like magical elements happening that you're not aware of you know are people really sort of in control of themselves there's a i don't want to spoil much more but there's basically three stories a tutorial story which is still pretty lengthy it's still a full-on story and two others you play through all three of them much like the detective campaign so it's three acts and you know and you play very similarly to a game of detective and i'm not going to spoil anything no i mean i can't even bring up any more pictures because frankly the bgg doesn't have any but you basically have cards you know, that you use as per detective, but you've got these separate decks for raiding, surveillance, and searching. And the idea is, is while you're going around the map and you're going to locations and reading story elements and making your choices, like choose your own adventure, you also have these tokens that you can use on a timer track, which is a timer for each mission. And you can say, right, I want to search the inn or I want to survey the ruins, or I want to go raid the blacksmith because I think he's dodgy, I think he's hiding something. So what you do is that you put, a, if you've got a token on one of the characters you picked, you put it on the timer track three hours ahead and on the location. And then when the three hours have elapsed and you're doing other things, the character is out of action for their tokens. But then after the three hours, you flip the card from that deck. So let's say I want to raid the blacksmith. I raid the blacksmith and I find... Card number 13, that's what it is, and it gives me more story elements. Now, it could be a red herring, and this is a little bit of an issue. I wish it didn't have quite so many dead-end uh, red herrings as it seems to. You know, you can sort of spend your your tokens, which you really need to not waste, and end up with a wasted effort, which is a little bit annoying, but not too big a deal. You should be able to work out most of the proper ways you should be using them. But there's one for every location, so there's quite a lot of variety in there, but what happens is that these allow you to uncover very important plot elements that you won't get from the main deck just going to the locations normally. So you might visit said blacksmith, for example, and get some information, but you're like, something's just not quite right. Something's not quite right. So you decide, you know what, I need to search it when he's not looking, or I need to raid it and go really question this guy. You won't find out certain pieces of information unless you do those things. That's a cool spin on this detective formula. Portal doesn't do that with their system. This is unique to this Mortem system. And I thought it was really cool. Maybe too many red herrings now and again, but still, I thought it was cool that you got given those choices. It was a nice little tweak to it. In terms of the writing, I actually thought the writing was pretty good here. You know, the story is nothing that you haven't seen in most sort of medieval magical tales, but I thought the writing was pretty decent. You know, the story was engaging enough. There was plenty of text to read. I mean, you're going to be reading this a lot. In fact, I really don't see why you would play this over two players. I think even, to be honest, I played this solo and I don't see why I would even play it with two players. You're going to be doing mostly reading, but it's a cool it's a decent story and you do make a lot of choices and i felt that there was some decent levels of branching paths you know there was certainly when you get to the uh, multiple choice questions at the end to say how well did you do you certainly get to a situation sorry uh, where you think hang on i know nothing about that where was i supposed to go for that oh if i'd gone this direction i would have found that stuff out but I instead focused on this. It's like, oh, okay. So you definitely can go down some very different routes. And there may be more than one solution for a problem. Uh, you may find like, oh, yeah, I went here, got this, and this allowed me to go through here. But then you could have also got that if you'd gone through this other route, and it might have even saved you a little bit of time doing it. So I, you know, I found this pretty cool. Each scenario is going to take you a good, say, 90 minutes solo to play through at least, possibly even two hours. I mean, they certainly are you know, quite sizable decks. Uh, production quality is pretty good. They've each got their own individual tuck box. But one thing I love about this system and detective almost does this but there is a little bit of a rule book system in it this one well firstly this one doesn't have an app right this is all done with the card so if you're the sort of person that hates the fact that detective uses a web browser and stuff like that this one doesn't use any app technology at all it's all cards but i love the fact that when you open the box all you get is the free decks that's it there is no rule book in this game you literally just open the box open the first tuck box and start at card one and go. It tells you how to play the game, how locations work, how those free decks like search and survey and that work, just through the cards. 
So you do not need to teach this game before you start playing. You can literally just open the box and get going instantly. That's really cool, and I want more storybook adventures to do this, okay? It would be so much better if you had a big narrative that uh, mission one was the entire tutorial that taught you how things work. Maybe two missions in case you had some advanced stuff to teach, like combat. But yeah, seriously, this works. I approve. Do it more often. So thumbs up on that one. But yeah, I enjoyed this one. It was good. It took a fair bit of time. It was a nice spin on Detective. It's kind of on par with Detective in terms of what I think of it. So, you know, I think I gave it a 9. Detective's kind of come down to a 9 out of 10 for me since uh, since the early days. But yeah, I mean, it's 9 out of 10. I think this is excellent. And I think this is definitely worth grabbing if you're a fan of these uh, kind of like Detective-style story-based uh, games. You know, the medieval setting is different and certainly it does make you think well why am i playing a nice group or am i playing a group that just likes to like bully people all the time it does give you the option to kind of do both which is cool i think i was a uh, kind of a bit of both but i think i didn't mind if i had to rough a few people up if necessary so uh yeah you gotta do what you gotta do to get your information but hmm the only thing that was a slight irritation is that this one sequel baits yeah um, this is technically a, a closed campaign in itself. You know, you sort out your missing agents issue in these three scenarios. But there's a bigger arc that is like it sort of just opens itself up but doesn't resolve. And so you know that this means more content coming that will follow this arc. Time Stories did this. Hmm, look where that went, you know, so this better not do a time stories where it promises this big arc thing and then completely forgets that it exists and writes itself in a corner. I will not be happy. But what it does mean is that you'll probably have to wait for the next bit of content to continue the arc. And what I was afraid of is that, oh, does that mean I need to hang on to this box because I'm going to forget the plot by the time that comes? Well, on Board Game Geek, there is apparently on 2022, The Shelter. This is what looks like a standalone expansion. Uh, I recognize the characters as being ones from uh, Mortem like Detective, so I don't think that it's like completely brand new campaign. But according to the description, it just goes to the same sort of deal. So it literally just, uh, you know, mentions there. But it says separate standalone scenario. And it says, we recommend to proceed this scenario after you finish the core storyline of Morton Medieval Detective. However, you may play this as a standalone scenario without even having the core game and knowing its plot. Good. I want to be able to sell my copy of Mortem on, give it to somebody else, let them try it, but not finish, like not forget everything that happened and be forced to go back when this comes out. The only thing is, if this is just going to be a one-off adventure, what's going to happen to this arc then? Is it just going to literally do a time stories where occasionally we get a new pack and we go through it and we just basically see how it unfolds? Because if that's the case, you better not pull another time stories because I will be annoyed with that. But so it remains to be seen how this is going to progress over time. But honestly, as a even if I found out nothing else about the arc that they've unfolded, not that fast. You know, if, if there was no other content and I just played those three adventures, I'd be like, I got my money's worth and I had a really good time for the money. So, yeah, Mortem, you know, I wouldn't hype it up too much, but I'd say that if you are into the Detective series and you like this kind of deduction card-based game and in particular you don't want a companion app or browser to have to deal with, Mortem could be a good one for you. All right, take a drink there. All right, and now let's go on to the second one. Role player adventures. Role player adventures. This one took me a long time to get through. <laughs> this one was crazy. I didn't even want to back this at first. I thought, you know, I love role player. Role player is a really good game, but I just thought, you know what? I'm fine. I don't need more campaign games. And honestly, I'm actually starting to get sick and tired of campaign games all the time. It's like everything's got to be 10 adventures or 15 missions and that. And it's like, can't we just have a good standalone game these days? It, would it kill you? Seriously? You know, role player is fine by itself. But I figured, all right, fine. I like the role player system. This one seemed like it used dice. It looked like it was lighter. Like, it wasn't a particularly heavy game rules-wise. So, I figured, go for it. Let's grab it, see what happens. Well, Roleplay Adventures basically has you going through a 
technically in an 11 mission campaign, 12 if you throw in a side quest. Each one is its own little book and it very much feels like a choose your own adventure game. You can generate a character through role player, but if you do that, your character will be stupidly overpowered, so don't try that. Basically, what you're best doing is picking one of the stupid amounts of characters that are in this game pre-generated, using their attributes, grabbing their cards, which give you all sorts of, you know, different ways to manipulate dice but and a tiny little backstory so yeah there's a lot of these i mean this is an orc rogue on the picture i took a bastjar soothsayer uh bastjar being a cat person basically because kitties kitties kitty kitty cat but yeah i chose one of them but honestly there is a bucket load of these characters you can have i mean you know the ones on this uh, rendered picture you know are completely different but essentially you take a board and you put a piece of paper in it which has the like bits you can write your attributes on, your name, your health points, and colored rows for the attributes where you put cubes on, these fatigue cubes. These basically are things that you can spend to um, manipulate the dice bag. Because what happens is that you lay a map out, and there's a map for each of the scenarios. Very good artwork in this. I really got to give credit to the artwork in these maps is gorgeous. And you have a piece better looking than this. Bear in mind, this is a TTS interpretation here because I don't want to. I don't want to spoil any more. I don't know how much more these pictures are going to show, but uh, uh, yeah, I'll stick to these two pictures. But the idea is is that your piece moves on the map, and you'll have some tokens that you remove that tell you to read out of a big tome of encounters, which is like a, a general encounters book, although it does link to the main plot in various ways. And then you have uh, these locations on the map where you cr you grab XP, and then it gives you a storybook proper thing. So out of the little book that you have for each scenario these will be specific to that scenario and the plot is I don't want to go into the plot too much I don't want to spoil really because I actually thought this was a pretty good story um I was engaged and the idea being that mainly you're dealing with three factions you've got the king's guard you've got the starlet door and you've got the dragoon and you're basically talking the humans you're talking well you're talking human royalty guard kingsmen that kind of thing you're talking the starlet door being like a group of mixed people but they're basically the magic the magic obsessed ones like they want to really mess around with magic and other planes and stuff but they don't really mind what uh, measures they have to go through to get it and then you've got the Dragul, which is basically the monsters. So, you know, centaurs and, and ogres and trolls and goblins and stuff who, you know, are obviously their own sort of people as well. Now, as you go through the game, you're going to be better and worse with certain factions depending on your story choices. And this will affect how the finale plays out, how certain encounters play out. Like if your favor is too low or, or, you know, too low, then certain people won't talk to you much. But if it's high enough, they suddenly become your friends and you come across them again. And you may think, well, this sounds normal. So where's the two, like, where's the selling points? Well, firstly, the dice manipulation. Users are similar to role player. Basically, every time you do a skill check or a... Uh, a combat test you i wonder if i can find an example well here's a combat picture here so you essentially is yeah, so just going up against a human so all right but basically you in the combat test you'll have this cat you'll have the board or sorry these cards and they tell you what certain colored dice and values need to be on them you then draw a certain amount of dice depending on your stats out of the bag and you use the cards that you have from the start and what you acquire during the game so open lock and various artifacts and scrolls and stuff and you essentially uh, like use these to manipulate it so this open lock one here it says it turns a three into either a one or a six there are some that change colors there are some that flip them over onto their opposite sides there are some that bring new dice into the pool and basically using these cards you have to try and you know cover all the spaces and skills work in exactly the same way you have the skill book that you can see in the background here there's one saying persuasion and the varying levels of difficulty different colors and the the values mean nothing theme wise but the colors are still relevant because green is constitution purple is charisma so if you're doing a charm or persuasion test naturally purple dice are going to feature more prominently than others because they are the social they're your charisma dice so there is some reason for the layouts but yeah the values mean nothing really and so it's basically a constant thing of every time you do these tests you try to cover all the spaces and if you do you succeed if you don't you fail but fail does not necessarily mean that you fail the entire mission it just means that you might get hit a bit or the story might pan out in a way that you 
may, you know that you didn't expect it to or you didn't want it to. So you will succeed some tests and you will certainly fail a decent amount of tests, but it's not going to completely screw you over for failing certain tests. You know, you will not it's not like the mission failed. It's just a different story pan out. So you never have to go, oh, you failed the charm test. Therefore, they kill you. Therefore, restart the scenario. That never happens. Do not worry. You will just end up at a different ending for the story in the finale. So I won't, I won't tell you how my story went, or apart from the fact that I went very heavily into the starlit door. Mmm, funky little mystical magical stuff. Yay, starlit door, please. I mean, come on, I was a soothsayer. What do you expect? But I do love the dice manipulation puzzle in this. It's very easy, although it is quite funny that when you play with multiple players, these cards are split between every player, so each one is contributing cards to the experience. Personally, maybe as a two-player game, I could see this being fine, but I don't see why I would ever play this with three or four. The game takes a long time to get through each scenario. I mean, you're playing these scenarios for a good two hours or so solo, you know, to get through them, and some are slightly longer than others, if you were playing this with more players, I think it would take you forever. Not to mention people would be sat around bored just listening to you read out a booklet, you know, to get in that involved. But when you play this solo, you acquire so many of these cards, it ends up as basically a giant deck. It's called your hand, but hand doesn't cut it. Even in a two-player game, you have a pretty set thing, but with a solo gamer, your deck's about this thick. It's ridiculous. So every time I get to a test, I have to look through about 30 to 50 cards to find what it is I need to do. Now, it's still fun and engaging, but it is kind of a weird thematic disconnect because it's called your hand and these are weapons, armor, scrolls and that. And you would imagine that there'd be some way to say, right, you can only carry so many of these into a scenario. Nope. <laughs> you can literally have everything you could be carrying an entire wardrobe of clothing you could be carrying like about 10 different weapons on you and you can use them whenever you need to so basically you have to imagine that your character is walking around with a constant bag of holding that never goes away it's um a little bit weird but that blemish aside i have to give credit where it's due this was fun this was engaging. It wasn't complicated. The rules are very easy to get. I mean, there's some tutorial elements in the first scenario, but mainly you could just read the main rule book and you'll be away. It really is not a complex game. Now, there's a ton in the box. You're certainly going to have to sort through a few things and get the game trays, you know, set up right and that. And make certain you've got the right card decks and stuff. So there's a bit of setup initially. But then once you've got the trays set up, then all you've got to do is pull out the trays and you're kind of ready to go. So it's relatively quick. But wow. Lots of variety of cards, many I never saw, variety of characters that you can pick from, variety of dice, I mean there's a ton of dice and you can get familiar dice and stuff like that as well, and the story, oh wow, I have never, I've got to give credit where it's due, this is a benchmark for branching paths, you ever want to talk about a narrative with branching paths, Roleplayer Adventures is now the new benchmark because it's legendary status for this, I've never seen a narrative do this so well, basically when you go through the game, you will encounter various people and you'll make choices, choose your own adventure. You get these title cards as you do it. So this one is Aid to Ogre, and it's not a massive spoiler. It's basically, I think, the first one you come across. But essentially, your choice means, your, your choice is basically, did you help the ogre or did you, like, let them succumb to whatever it was? And there's various other ones. You know, did you choose to help this person or did you choose to leave them be? Did you decide to go rob this place or did you decide, you know what, there's another way of doing it? Uh, you know, and there's basically different like choices you make and they give you all these titles and you end up with a deck full of these things as well but then it could be the same scenario it could be next scenario it could be six scenarios down the line but some point they will come across a point where it says if you have said title read a different paragraph and the story changes a little bit there I've never seen so many. There are so many of these titles. There are so many different branching paths. I guarantee I could play this game and get a fundamentally different story, sort of. This is a slight caveat here. I have played through this game all the way through. It took me a long time and I really enjoyed myself. But I don't think I would play through this a second time. The main plot will not change and you will not fail said mission. It's just a case of how good or bad your ending was, really. So, 
you know what the main plot is going to be and you know what it's all leading up to. The difference is, is all the subplots is that's where the branching paths come into play mainly. So did you make friends with this particular gnome character? If so, some other elements of the subplots revolved around this gnome, but maybe you didn't make friends with him and he was an enemy, in which case you went off and did certain different things. It would give you a little different bonuses from here and then, or it'd give you different allies, have access for different weapons mainly. But for the most part, it's subplots, not the main arc. And I just can't see myself wanting to invest another 25 hours into this to play for a second time just to see what some of those other subplots might have been. But on top of that, this um, Nasker or Nefir's Judgment or whatever it's called, this book that you can get. Now, I'm going to stress here. If you got this with the Kickstarter, great. If you're thinking, should I get this book before getting Roleplayer Adventures... I'd be a little bit wary about that because this book is expensive. I mean, I can't remember how much it is, but it's like a good 30, 40 quid for this book. I'm not sure. It's, it's quite expensive. But all it gives you mainly in this box is some little sideboard that allows you to put a backstory uh, thing in it, a tiny little alignment thing with a cube, much like in Roleplayer. And all that happens is that you, at various stages of the main plot, about four times, you will instead go to the spiral bound booklet for backstories and you will read the paragraph that pertains to your backstory. Highly recommend you do dual backstories because there's about 50 plus backstories in this book. And even if you do dual backstories as a solo game, that means you're going to read two out of 50 in this book. You will not use most of the content in this book. And so when you go to, like, say, scenario four and go to location B, after you've done what you're doing there, you then have to turn to what well, was a haunted hunter. So I basically, you know, had to read the haunted section at that particular time. And it had another sort of subplot that still linked to the main arc in some way. I was quite impressed about how the main arc still came into play in this. But it just gave me a little bit of an extra story that was personal to me. But man, for the price that you have to pay for this book, I don't think it's worth it. If you got it in the Kickstarter, great. But I think if you've already spent a ton of money on Roleplayer Adventures, if you have the book, it will add to the enjoyment, yes. But it is probably the biggest waste of money. It's, it's probably like the worst value for money you can get because yes, it adds a nice cool element to the story, but for the amount you spend and the amount of content in this book that you waste, unless you are going to play this game for about five ten times and even then why <laughs> why would you play through this five to ten times i don't know but you're just gonna waste the content it's like gloomhaven it's like oh look at all the content in gloomhaven yeah but you don't see 90 percent of it so who cares and the same with this book so i'm a little aware about the expansion but the game itself yes you're not going to see a ton of the uh, subplot content in there because you you know your branching paths will say otherwise but this nice puzzle the books, the scenarios. I've talked about this long enough. It's an excellent game. I'd give this, uh, what did I, I gave Mortimer 9 out of 10. I think this one I would give a 9 out of 10 as well. I don't think it's quite 10 out of 10 uh, because it is going to take a long time to get through this. It doesn't seem worth playing this with more than two players. And even then, I think I'd rather play it solo. It's a very good solo game. In fact, I think I'm, did I mention this in my top 10 solo games with Mark Dainty? I'm not sure. Um, maybe I hadn't played enough of it by that list. Probably not, but yeah, we'll see. But yeah, a lot of content, very good artwork, good components. The cards are a little on the flimsy side, but honestly, I wouldn't bother sleeving them because, well, sleeve your deck maybe. I'd, I'd, I'd probably recommend sleeving the deck that you have for your hand, but don't worry about sleeving all the other cards in the box. It's not necessary, but yeah, really good. Lots of variety, good story, good branching narratives, nine out of 10, Close to a 10, not quite, but certainly an excellent game and one that you should definitely think of looking at if you want a more, a a really thematic yet puzzly, simpler storybook game, you know, because some of these campaigns are stupidly complicated and have a bunch of rules and that. This one is really easy to get into, you know, much easier than a lot of the other ones. Does a great job. Yeah, roleplayer adventures. I've said enough. Okay, let's drink a bit of cold coffee. Wow, cold, yeah, yeah, coldish. Still good quality coffee, but yeah, I left that a bit long. There we go. <laughs> I don't know what it's like for you lot on the podcast when you're listening to this on audio form, listening to me like talk about drinking coffee and that. But hey, when you talk for this long and you want to keep it constant, 
you know, without having to uh, break the editing time all the time, you got to just go with the flow. That's just how it works. Righty, uh, let's uh, finish this episode up with talking briefly, because I think it's only briefly I need to talk about this, hopefully 10 minutes, but we'll see. <laughs> I say this every time and it goes on forever. Um, I have asked the Patreons to uh, give me some like ideas for podcast topics and so you know there's some good ones there there was even a very good top 10 idea actually top 10 worst things in your favorite games that's a pretty good top 10 so i think i would like to do with a collaborator at some point actually i think i'll save that one for but you know because i mean not every game is no game is flawless even my 10 out of 10 games have some issue with them what are they you know that'd be really cool but uh so with this one, um, I, I said, can you give me some more ideas for Q&As and podcast topics? And the lovely Emily came up with a topic that I can talk about briefly, which is how much effort am I willing to put into solo heavy games? Because I do like my solo games, uh, you know, as much as Mark Dainty and other ones, you know, and but how much effort do I want in a solo mode? Because with solo games, you know, I want to be able to get it out reasonably quickly and get through it reasonably quickly unless there's enough engagement to warrant the time. But there's also a rules complexity thing. So, for example, Ark Nova, uh, you know, I know I'm going to be talking about Ark Nova, but, you know, the solo mode in this is great. It's basically reach a target. So it's not just beat your own score. It's simply get to a target and you win or lose. And in Ark Nova, all you do is you basically have a little cardboard tile and it simulates like coffee breaks that happen but you know which is kind of like a admin facing and getting income but mainly you basically play through 27 turns and you've got to start at a certain point value and you've got to get your markers to meet you know you've got to reach the end game and how you do it is entirely up to you that's it that's a solo mode no complex ai no weird set of rules or anything it's literally just take your turns as normal except the coffee break works a little bit differently that is it Nice and simple. Lots of people are playing this solo. And honestly, before I reviewed it, you know, I played it a bunch of times at Gridcom, but then I had to play a ton of it online on Tabletop Simulator with other people. But I can whip through this solo on Tabletop Simulator in an hour as a great solo game for a meaty experience. And as you'll notice, I wonder if, it, if you can see it in the thing. Yes, I finally have a physical copy. <laughs> I was on the second wave of pre-orders and I feel the pain for anybody who has not yet got a copy of this and is waiting for theirs because of the, the frankly abysmal way that Furland and Asmodee deal with product copies. Furland do not print enough copies for their games despite the fact they know they're super popular and they do it just to drive up the demand and the hype which i think is a shady way to do things but no oh well needs must in the business world i guess but you know if you're still waiting for yours and you've got stuck it on pre-order i do feel your pain because i was in that situation for a while but yeah so glad i've got it now but yeah solo mode in this great gives me a heavy game experience with an easy solo mode um fields of all is another good example of a solo mode i quite like in uh year again because Fields of All, now this one has a bit more rules to learn than Ark Nova. I think Ark Nova is a bit easier to sort of get to the table rules-wise, but love this game. Sandbox, build all the stuff to do with farms. Now, in a solo game, you literally just try and get as high a score as you can. So there's no additional rules to learn, really. You just, apart from maybe how the timer works, but because this is a sandbox game... I can do whatever I feel like. Is this just, you know what? I just want to try out some weird strategy and see what it works, see what works, and just have fun building a farm. And so these sort of games that have a strong theme that I really enjoy and really like, like farming, I think is a cool theme for a game. This sort of thing really appeals to me. And so I'm willing to put in the effort to go, right, so how do I play the entirety of Fields of Isle again? Well, you know, for this kind of experience, yes. Now, solo games that are easier to do you know it, well yeah solo games that have got easy modes so say cascadia cascadia is a nice simple game i mean you can you know never going to forget the rules to this game the solo mode is very straightforward you basically set up the cards for scoring in a specific way uh, and then you have to get so many points in order to beat the scenario and there might be some other conditions i can crank out a solo game of this in 20 to 30 minutes tops and it's so simple, very quick setup, and there's plenty of these solo scenarios. So this is a fantastic little game to play solo if you want to. And again, quick and easy rules, 
No real complex thing, you just get on and meet a target. And I think this is something I prefer in these games, because the solo modes that I'm not playing as often, with some exceptions that are done really well, are the ones with AI opponents. Because, frankly, it's very difficult to simulate an AI opponent in a, in a solo game. You know, people think very differently to how some random deck of cards or automna mode is going to make you think. So you don't get that feeling of a multiplayer game from a lot of AIs. And AI systems mean a new set of rules and they can get stupidly complicated for heavy games. And it quickly reaches a point where I just don't care. Yeah, there are some exceptions to the rule. I will talk very highly about, for example, um, Viscounts of the West Kingdom and uh, associated with this, I would say Architects of the West Kingdom. Both of them are pretty straightforward solo AI rules. Now, yes, there's additional rules you've got to learn, but the way their graphic design is done and the way that their system is, it's a very smooth AI. Now, here's, um, yeah, I think this is, yeah, this is an AI sideboard. So, Basically, you just flip the player board over. You've got four different opponents that go after different types of cards, depending on which one you pick. So it does simulate an opponent quite well, but it's a straightforward thing. I mean, the board looks very similar to what it does before. The iconography is all for... Yes, I mean, there's a ton of it on this screen. I understand. But if you know how to play Viscounts, all this iconography, most of it makes sense. And then it's basically a case that you just basically use a deck of cards for the AI. You plonk it down. They go across the conveyor as normal. And you just go from top to bottom doing whatever action it can do. So can it do the first action? No. Then do the second one. Can it do that one? No. Then do the third one. And the third one you'll be able to do regardless. Nice and simple. But this is such a good, smooth AI. One of the best I've seen. You know, and Wingspan's probably another good example. Wingspan's got a very nice, smooth AI system in it as well. Now, I don't tend to want to play Wingspan solo that often, but you know, now that I mention it, you know, I say the solo mode in Wingspan is not a difficult solo mode to implement. And both Wingspan's a light-ish game, light to midweight. This is a midweight game, Viscounts of the West Kingdom, I think maybe that's the thing. I think a midweight game is fine for an AI because the rules are at a level where I'm comfortable with it and the solo AI is not stupidly complicated on top. But why don't we go to the other end of the spectrum where AIs just go off the rails? Now, some exceptions. Kanban EV has a very good... Uh, solo AI in it, right? This is uh, one of David Turksey's things, and let's face it, if you want to talk about solo AIs, basically David Turksey's name is plastered on everything. And Kanban is very complex, again. The AI is also pretty complex as well. It's not exactly an easy rule set. It's its own set of rules about how the AI interacts with everything. But it's a very engaging AI that this is kind of one of those exceptions where if I'm going to put in this much effort to play one of my favorite Euro games of all time, this solo mode is actually really good and probably worth it. But yeah, every time I visit it, I'm going to have to relearn all the solo rules or I'm going to have to check the rule book constantly to see what it does. And at that point, I'm like, maybe I'd just rather have other players do this. Now, like I say, Kanban's a really good solo mode, so this is kind of an exception. But then you start getting into things like the T-series the from Board and Dice. So, uh, Teotihuacan and, you know, Tekenu, uh, Tabanusi that I did recently, you know, a lot of them. These have got solo modes that are well-designed. Some of them by David Tursi and some by Daniel Tassini. But the solo modes in these are complex as old get-out. Like, they have priority diagrams. They have all sorts of different mechanics to them. It's like learning a brand new game to learn the solo mode. At that point... I'm out. Like, I really have little, like, care about this. That defensive proction one I meant earlier, you have to read two separate rule books plus another side rule book for solo rules in order to play a solo game. Do not try to do this as your teaching game of defense. It will go down hard. And I actually got halfway through trying to learn it before I'd even played the multiplayer game and thought, I'm bored. Can't, I, I can't do this. This is just too much. Too much rules overload. Not not worth the investment. Now, after I've played a multiplayer game, it's a lot easier to now sort of play it solo. But even then, I wasn't playing a human race in the multiplayer game. And I still don't know how they essentially work. So I'm still going to have to read three rule books to do the solo mode. That's just too much. And in these games, in particular, the T-Series, there's just so many rules. 
But one thing I really hate as well, priority diagrams. You know, Merv is another example. Um, this one is a Eurogame from 2020. I enjoyed it, seven out of 10, it's dry as old get out, but the solo mode in this requires you to learn this ridiculous like comics uh, priority system for how two separate different types of pieces move. And it's a case of, right, if A works, then do B. But if A is not there, then maybe do C. And if B and C and D are linked, then go do E. And then F and G and, and Venus aligns with M. You know, do this. And it's just, oh my God, you can't memorize these things. You have to go to the back of the book to constantly go, right, so hang on. So I flip that card for the AI go through the book, does this. And if I feel like I'm putting in effort to play a simulated game turn, that is where I draw the line. It really is insane. I, the recent one I did, uh, Batoku. Oh my God, do I hate the solo in Batoku. The Batoku game, I wasn't exactly that much like great on anyway, but, you know, five out of 10, I thought it was average. You know, it, it was a looker, but sadly just did not win me over with its very dry, overcomplicated, bad rule book, you know, for three hours, not much reason to have too many players there. It's like, oh, and busy board, that's just a nightmare to try and visualize where everything is. But with this, the solo mode in this has a page long priority system for how the AI does its thing. It's got about 10, 15 different steps that you go from top to bottom to see what action it will do next. Are you frigging kidding me? This is ridiculous. There is no way to memorize that diagram. There is no quick crib sheet for it. And honestly, even if there was, I could not care. Now, this solo mode was still fun to play, ish obviously the game i only gave a five out of ten but i thought the solo mode was still fun ish but there's just too much investment i gotta constantly go through that priority diagram just to see if the computer decides it wants to take this card come on now i could see this being brilliant if you did a companion app for it so the app does the priority thing all you got to do is just answer a couple of quick multi-fire questions and it'll work out what the, the ai should do Great. I could see this being a good Steam application, maybe. But as a physical board game, I don't know anybody who's playing this Batoku solo and thinks it's a smooth, streamlined system, because it is not. Now, it sounds like I'm coming down hard on Terzi. I mean, he's done a lot of these solo modes. He's a great guy, lovely guy, and he does put a lot of effort into these designs, and some of them do really work. I mean, he did the... I mentioned the one before, Kanban. That's one of his, you know, really, really good. Uh, on the Underground... On the Underground's got a brilliant mini expansion solo mode in it. David Turksey definitely did that one. Um, I mean, it does sound like I'm doing that, but honestly, when you talk about solo modes these days, most of the time it's David Turksey or David Digby. It's usually those two who have done the solo modes, frankly. So, you know, give me some slack. But because most of the time when a game throws in a solo mode and it's not one of those two, they've literally just pasted it on to satisfy a one to four player count on the box. And you can tell it's tacked on. And there are some tacked on solo modes out there. Meadow, much. But uh, on the underground, um, uh, actually, that's the wrong one I need to find. But great game. Sebastian Bleasdale did the game, but the underground challenge was a David Turksy one. And you notice I rate it 10 because I do think this is one of the best solo games I've played for a lightish uh, game. Basically, all it is is a small deck of cards. And let's say Sebastian's on the cover, but really David Turksy had his hand on this one. And all you do is you basically have a couple of cards where you pre-set up the, the opponent networks. They've already built their networks. You're building around them. You do the exact same game as the multiplayer game. You take it in turns, except this time the lazy passenger moves twice instead of once minor tweak and the idea is is that they've started on a certain amount of points based on the networks they've done you have to overtake their point marker that's it that is all the new rules in the game just a slight tweak to the passenger movement and that's it beat the marker simple rule set but it works so well. It allows me to play this great game solo in a fraction of the time it would take to play, say, a four or five player game of this, hence you normally cap it at three. And it required so little investment in terms of new rules. And that is great. Just give me a simple, I don't need an AI opponent to simulate a multiplayer game. Give me a target to hit and then give me very simple rules for the solo mode. If you've got to tweak certain aspects, great, but don't rewrite the entire game to give me a solo mode. Uh, 
Pursuit of Happiness is another good example. Uh, Pursuit of Happiness, you play the game exactly like a multiplayer game. And I think this is what the best solo modes are. The best solo mode is one that feels like you've just played the multiplayer game by yourself, which is great, without needing extra time and rules. Because in Pursuit of Happiness, you play through the game as normal. Collect cards, live your life, get items, go on dates and stuff. So I get that wonderful thematic thing out of this game as normal. But the only thing that changes is that the cards, the life goals, normally they give players points for achieving certain criteria. Well, this time, they're the targets. Not only do you have to get 50 points, 60 if you've got the expansion included, but you basically have to do the three goals. So one life goal that normally gives you, say, a point for every project has a goal on the bottom of a solo game saying that you must have done at least this many types of projects. There could be one that says you must have at least got a level three job. You also must have raised a family, that kind of thing. And they are varied in how they work, but that's so good because then you get different combinations of those three goals. And as I say, you may be like, right, well, I can do this aspect of the relationship, but I've also got to juggle a level three job. Where am I going to find the time to do the third life goal? That's going to be tricky. And so simple. I play the game exactly as it was a multiplayer game just with a slight tweak and a simple target. Because I mentioned this in, I think the game, was it a solo thing I did with Mark Dainty? I think it was. Um, I think it was the Lacerda list we did a long, long time ago. But basically, I hate this whole aspect of get tiers, you know, tier systems for what you do with, you know, oh, like, did you do well at level A tier? Well, then you, nope, well, then you suck. You know, the Lacerda games are horrible for this. I just want a target number. I don't need the AI opponent to simulate a robot playing a game with me. I'm playing this solo for a reason that I played it solo. You know, there's a reason. But it allows me to go, right, what's the target? Beat it. I don't care if I get 100 points or, oh, I've beaten my high score now. I got 110. I don't care. All right. I never like time trials on Mario Kart. You know, it was like, can you beat your time by a second? I don't care. I want to have fun driving around and shooting shells at people. That's the idea of Mario Kart. But with something like this, it's like, don't give me an AI robotic opponent. Don't give me a tier system. Just give me a target. Ark Nova did the same thing. Give me a target to beat. To win, you must achieve X. Play the game as you would with some minor tweaks. Achieve X or fail. Perfect. You've created the perfect solo mode for me. Not every game needs a solo mode. Honestly, everybody is just chucking out solo modes left, right, and center. And I hate the fact that this is the case. Seriously, there are a bunch of games that I would say strip the solo mode out and spend more time developing the main game. That would have been nice. But yeah, so I mean, I may have slightly gone off on slight tangents there. But when I'm talking about my effort with a heavy solo game, you know, Cascadia's light, whatever, and Pursuit and Viscounts is kind of mid, but mid to heavy is certainly a thing. It's just a case of, I don't want to have to learn an entire new rule set to play a solo game. It takes a lot of time for me to like learn a game anyway. And I've got to learn how many games to do this job, well, job, hobby, as a, a reviewer. A lot of rule books. There's only so much room in my tiny little brain here to get rule books in. The last thing I want is to have spent hours learning your multiplayer game only to then find I need to spend another couple of hours to learn your solo mode. And if I feel when I'm playing it that I am spending more time thinking about how on earth I do the simulated opponent's turn than my own turn, the solo mode fails for me. I'm not interested. This is the effort I'm not willing to put into for a solo mode. And there are some people that are, but... You know, take um, Nemesis actually was a good example. Nemesis is quite a involved rule set, all right? I'd, I'd call that a heavy game for rules anyway. But you don't tweak it that much for a solo game compared to the multiplayer game, apart from the whole how the objectives work. So it's not semi-co-op, it's fully co-op effectively. But I play it very similarly to how I would play a multiplayer game. So I'm willing to put in the effort for something that's a bit more rules intensive to play the solo. And I have. I've got the uh, lockdown downstairs and I've been playing that a bit solo. I don't think it's the best solo game ever like some people do, Mark. Uh, but I can see where people would really love this. I, I think it's good. I think it's like six, seven out of ten, probably seven out of ten. I think it's good, you know, but I would rather play this multiplayer 
then play it solo despite the fact that the, the multiplayer game drags on for a while i think solo gets a little repetitive like the missions don't really feel that different when you're playing it solo and it's mostly just about playing hide and seek rather than actually anything exciting happening but it depends what you want to get out of nemesis really but as i say i was willing to put in the effort with this and this took me a bit of effort to learn those rules and i still don't know if i'm playing it 100 right but I was fine with this. I didn't have to learn an entire new rulebook full of rules. And this is what I'm getting at. Just give me a give me a solo mode that is similar if not identical to how you play at multiplayer, but just give me simple targets to achieve and I'm good. That's the perfect level of effort I want to put in. I'm just getting sick and tired of AI automners that are more complicated than the actual multiplayer game itself. Ooh, right, well, oh, that's brought me very nicely to an hour. So <laughs> that's a pretty good length for the podcast. And obviously, uh, it wasn't going to be a 10-minute chat. It was very much longer. But as I say, by all means, uh, if you like what you heard here, then you know, thumb it up on SoundCloud, thumb it up on YouTube. If you can have a look at the Patreon, as I say, you know, there's different levels that you can help the channel out. And if you're even as a low paint here, you can get involved in these ideas for podcast topics and Q and A's and stuff and what I want to talk about on live streams. So I'm very interested to get your thoughts. Thank you, Emily, for coming up with this idea. As the more I was talking about it, the more I found this quite interesting. Um, and also, if you're at a certain tier and above, you can vote on top 10 lists to do, submit your ideas for that. And you know, there's definitely some stuff I'm trying to do to you know, make it worthwhile, but any support that you can give, even if it's just thumbing up the video and leaving a comment is perfectly fine because I love to hear from you. And if you can share the stuff on social media and get the word out more, then I appreciate it even more. You know, the, uh, just little things that you can do that make a big difference to me. And I thank you all. But I'm going to sign off for this podcast now. So uh, I will speak to you all soon. Thank you very much for listening or watching, depending on what platform you're doing this on. Um, Yo, take care. I will see you on the next Broken Meeple video. And remember, as always, it's only a game. Bye for now, everyone.